Pumpkin Days is um, about a month away, and so I've been seeing different advertisements for pumpkins. And if you've you've never seen a, I don't know what are they like, 1,500 pound pumpkin, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. But it's a big pumpkin. And I was thinking of that this week, and then I, I heard another story, uh, this one out of Nebraska. I was listening to a podcast, and it's funny, in the podcast, they were, they were talking about this particular story, and, and uh, part of the podcast, they were like, how would you use that in a sermon illustration? And they were trying to figure out how they could, and here I am using it in a sermon as an illustration. Uh, but uh, Dwayne Hansen, uh, he grew a large pumpkin in Nebraska, 846 pounds. He called it Berta. And he took Berta, he carved uh, the top off of Berta, and in Bellevue, Nebraska, he dropped Berta, now the USS Berta, into the Missouri River, and he climbed in, I think we got some pictures here, (laughs) and Dwayne floated for, um, let me make sure I get my facts right here, 38 miles down the Missouri River, all the way to Nebraska City before he made land, took him 11 hours, and in doing so, on his 60th birthday, Dwayne broke the Guinness World Record for floating in a pumpkin. Previously, it was, previously I think it was 25 miles in a pumpkin. And uh, when I hear stories like this, um, my question is, why? You know, why? Why, why, do, why do we even think of stuff like this? But Dwayne, he's now in the Guinness Book of World Records. That, that question why gets to the, the motive of a thing, right? What's his motivation uh, to, at the age of 60, on his 60th birthday, float for 11 hours, avoiding boats and wakes and all sorts of things, trying to stay afloat in a large pumpkin? Why does he do it? And we ask that question a lot. Motives get to the heart of what we do. Why do you get up and go to work every day? Why are you here this morning? Motives are that foundational thing in our lives that shapes the direction of our lives. It's that inner voice that gets us moving and and doing the things that we do. And as a pastor and and a person who's engaged in discipleship and counseling, that's a question that I ask a lot and I encourage other people to ask. Why are you doing what you're doing? What is the motive behind it? Well, today we're asking about Paul's motives. Paul, why do you do what you do? Why does Paul continue to do the things he does? What motivates Paul when he's in the city of Lystra and he's there and he's sharing the gospel and they get mad at him for sharing the gospel and they drag him outside of the city and they throw a bunch of rocks at him and stone him, leaving him dead, in their opinion, and he gets back up and what does he do? He walks back into the city. What motivates that? What motivates Paul to, to at the moment when the crowds are really vicious towards him and they're saying things like, let's kill this guy, he's like, I want to keep on talking. I want to deliver another sermon. Why does Paul do what he does? Why does he continue to love and minister and pray for the Corinthians, even though time and time again they've turned their backs on him, they haven't listened to what he, ha- he has had to say, they've gone after the ways of the false teachers. Why does Paul do what he does? Let's go ahead and read our text, and we're going to find in here two motivations for Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about 
outward appearance, that's the false teachers, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, or in other words, crazy, if we have lost our minds, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls or constrains us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of the songs we sang this morning, reminding us of the truths of our Savior. Thank you for the challenge Josh brought us to, to really consider your word. And I pray that that would be the case this morning, that we would have a zeal for your truth and meditate on this to the point that we leave here today, not just hearing something, but doing something. And so God, help us in that endeavor. Spirit, we pray that you would work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the two motivations, if you picked up on them in the text for Paul, are fear, the fear of the Lord, and love, the love of Christ. And so we're going to begin with the fear, his opening line in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, we persuade others. That, that connects us back to where we ended last week in verse 10, discussing the judgment seat of Christ. Discussing the fact that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and there we will receive the reward for the faithfulness that we've shown, for the obedience that we've shown. We will receive those rewards based upon that faithfulness. And so in light of that coming judgment, Paul isn't debilitated like a deer in the headlights, but he is motivated to do something. He's motivated to persuade others to know Christ. He's motivated to persuade others to follow Christ in obedience. Paul doesn't want in that moment at the judgment seat of Christ a pile of ashes in his hands. He wants eternal reward, the gold, the silver, and the precious stone. I want to clarify two things here. First, an appropriate fear of the Lord is reverence. It's, it's not cowering in a corner. And, and how, do, how do we get there? Because if we think about the fact that our God is all-powerful, he is in control, that can cause us to cower in the corner, can it? That can cause a, a fear to know that, that he is of greater power than I am, except for what? We understand that his all-powerfulness is balanced by what? His goodness. And because he is all-powerful, but he is also good, we reverence him. We, we do this, we trust him. We entrust and surrender ourselves to him. That's what Paul says, this is the fear of the Lord that he has. This is the fear of the Lord that we should have. Second point of clarification I wanna make has to do with Paul's use of the word persuade. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, he doesn't like that word very much. He, he doesn't want to be persuasive. He doesn't want to use persuasive speech. And so here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear, much trembling 
and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It wasn't based upon the persuasive wisdom speech of the day, but rather in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But now, the fear of the Lord is motivating him to persuade these in Corinth and others to follow Christ. In fact, he spent a huge portion of this letter, if you've been around for this study, trying to persuade them to trust him, right? To trust his integrity. To trust the integrity of the message that he's sharing. He's been working very hard to reel them in and to get them back on Team Paul and Team Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what gives? Well, the prior warning is about using manipulative speech manipulative tactics in order to coerce people into doing what you want them to do that's what the false teachers in Corinth were doing they were manipulating people in order to follow him that's persuasive speech those tactics can still be used today in churches I'm, I'm, I'm afraid those are tactics that in my past I've used those are certainly tactics in the past that have been used on me tactics like guilting people Right? Guilting people into doing something. Saying, well, well, you should really do this because if you don't, God's going to really be disappointed in you. He may be crying in heaven right now because you didn't do this thing, right? We're, we're, we're using guilt to motivate people to do things that we want them to do. It's wrong. It's manipulative. It's the wrong kind of approach. How about fleshly approaches? This was a good one. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity that says, hey, if you, if you do these things, if you're obedient to Jesus, he might just give you a new car or you might just win the lottery. Be faithful to Jesus and, and he'll shower you with the blessings of this world. What does that appeal to? Flesh. How about guilting people with fear? Motivating people with fear. This, this right here, this happens in churches, but this right here is, is the state of our country right now. Both sides of the aisle are using fear to motivate people to do what they want them to do. The media is using fear to motivate us to do what they want us to do. If I can get them afraid enough, then they'll do whatever they have to do. Fear is a huge motivator. So avoiding manipulation, avoiding these tactics, Paul passionately and, and clearly appeals to his listeners, repent, turn from yourself, turn from your sin to Christ. He's persuading others. And the fear of the Lord is motivating him to do that. Does the fear of the Lord, the idea of the coming judgment, motivate us to persuade others? Who are we actively working on right now? Who are we persuading to turn to Jesus so that they might avoid the final judgment. As verse 11 finishes and spills into verse 12, Paul once again gets defensive. R remember that, that he's writing this letter partially to defend his integrity because his integrity is founded upon the integrity of the message that he preaches. And so if they prove Paul to lack integrity, then they're gonna say his message lacks integrity. That is the message of Jesus lacks integrity. And they're already trying to do this. The false teachers in this church are stirring people up. They're stirring them up against Paul. They're saying things like, Paul can't be trusted. Remember when he told us he was going to come back and he was going to visit us and then he didn't? You can't trust him. And the false teachers are planting these seeds and trying to get them to turn their backs on Paul. And Paul's defense here begins with this claim. What we are, 
what we, and, and notice the we's here. This is all plurals. I'm kind of focusing in on Paul, but he's referring to his, his ministry entourage. He's, he's referring to Timothy who's with him and these other faithful brothers and sisters who are there serving. And he's saying we, he's using this as a whole, but he says what we are is known to God. Building on the fear of the Lord, Paul reminds the Corinthians that God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything. And Paul says, I'm okay with that because I've got nothing to hide. I'm not afraid of that. And he hopes also that their consciences will be turned and reminded of who Paul is as well. As he finishes out verse 11 and then in verse 12, things get a little bit confusing because Paul makes this claim that he doesn't intend to commend himself and his ministry and then he kind of commends himself and, and his ministry and you think, well, well, which is it, Paul? And throughout his letter, he's been walking that tightrope, Right? He's boasting about the ministry that he gets to do, the gospel ministry, but he's not, you know, boasting about it. He's not, he's not bragging about it. He's wanting to draw attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not wanting to draw attention to himself. And so here he writes, we are not commending ourselves, this is verse 12, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Here, here's what I see happening here. Paul is saying, I shouldn't have to defend myself and the integrity of my ministry to you, Corinthians. You should be defending it. You know that this message that I came proclaiming, you know this gospel changed your life. Stand up and say it. Stand up to the false teachers and proclaim, yes, we are with Paul because we're with Jesus. He wants them to rise to the occasion and boast about what Christ is doing in their lives. That statement that then concludes verse 12 is another little jab at the false teachers. They were all about the, the outward appearance, not the inward change. Their focus was on external. Think about the, the, uh, the first letter that he wrote to them about the, the, the gifts and the, the boisterous gifts. They were all about those who have the gifts that are in front of people. That's what matters the most. And Paul says, no, 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 love is what matters the most. It's what's on the inside that matters the most. It's very reminiscent of that, that scene that happens in 1 Samuel where Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he's looking for the next king. And he knows he's going to the house of Jesse and he goes to the house of Jesse and he sees the biggest and the oldest and the strongest and says, there he is. And God says, no, that's not him. And they go person by person, son by son, till there's none left. And then they're like, oh, well, there's David. And you remember what God says in that moment to Samuel? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's what Paul says. Look at the heart. Look at the motivations of me, look at the motivations of the false teachers and just see for yourself who is faithful, who is of integrity. And then finally, verse 13, Paul addresses another accusation. This one's kind of funny to me. Some were calling Paul mad. <laughs> they say, and he's beside himself. He's, he's lost his mind. They aren't the only ones who had called him that. I think it was Agrippa there at the end of Acts that said, Paul, you, you've lost your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. But I love what Paul writes here. He says, if that's true, if we're crazy, then we're crazy for God. 
And if we're of a sound mind, we're of a sound mind for you. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter if you say I'm crazy. It doesn't matter if you say I'm of sound mind. What matters is the fact that what we're doing, we're doing for the glory of God and we're doing for the good of other people. And so your opinions don't much matter in that factor. Paul's motivated, you could add here, not only by the fear of the Lord, but, but really his love for God and his love for people. Those are, those are points that we've already made in this study, but worth repeating. Second thing that motivates Paul Verses 14 and 15 is the love of Christ. Verse 14, he claims that the love of Christ constrains, compels, controls. It's, it's kind of a hard word to get at. Uh, one author put it, it's like, it's the idea of it hems him in. It, 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 it holds us secure. That's the idea of what the love of Christ does for Paul. Uh, one author puts it this way, and I'll just read the, the quote. The love of Christ puts limits on Paul's actions. It moves Paul in specific directions. It constrains his course of actions in the world. It calls Paul to self-sacrificial love that's patterned after Christ himself. That's what it does. Another author emphasizes the fact that it, it, it protects. The love of Christ protects us from the dangers of sin and the things that exist in the world. The immediate question that, that we have to ask and everybody has to ask is when he says the love of Christ controls me, what's he talking about? Is he talking about his love for Christ or Christ's love for him? And it's the latter. And we see that because as the passage continues on, he says, because we have concluded this, the love of Christ controls me because we have concluded this. We've concluded what? that one has died for all. It's Christ's love for us. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, that is Jesus, died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. It's kind of confusing beautiful but it's confusing one died for all and still all die Hughes uh, one commentator said this is some mystic calculus stuff going on right here how does this work how does it make sense let me read what J. Gresham Mason writes he says Christ died for all therefore all died it is so because Christ was the representative of all when he died. And the death that he died on the cross was in itself the death of all. And since Christ was the representative of all, therefore all may have been said to have died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem when Christ died. What Paul is leading us to is the substitutionary death of Jesus. The representative death of Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And so one died and all died with him. And it goes on that, that not only ending in death and his incredible love in that action, but it ends in life, doesn't it? You see, the dead gain their life by putting their faith in Jesus. And not only do we die with Jesus as he died on the cross, but we rise with Jesus 
as he rose from the dead, walking out of the tomb. It's what we picture in baptism, right? Baptism pictures the death that we die with Jesus and the life that we raise to with Christ. Resurrection life, new life, united with him. But the life that we who were once dead and now live, live, is no longer to be lived for our own selfish pursuits, is it? That selfish part of us should have stayed dead in the grave. It it didn't rise. That's not the new life. And Paul says this new life is a life that's not driven by the motivation of, of your selfish pursuits and your selfish desires. Rather, it should be motivated by a love for others just as that love's been shown to you. Just as Christ did not selfishly uh, live his life, you should not selfishly live your life either. The life we now live is to be a life lived for him. For him who died and lives. We make it our aim. Remember that verse? We make it our aim to please him, to live for Christ. We have to consider, as we think about Paul's motivations, the coming judgment. This is that idea that we we propose a lot, keeping an eye on eternity, because the judgment is real, eternity is real, this life will end. And, and that should put in us a fear. A fear that, that motivates me to want to do everything I can to faithfully follow Jesus so that on that day, I won't have a pile of ashes. But there will be things of eternal consequence, gold and silver and precious stone. We've talked about that. What, what are the things of eternal consequence in this world? The souls of men and women. That's it. I love my house. I love my stuff. But it's, it's going to burn. It's not going to make the cut. It's, it's souls that are of eternal consequence. Unbelievers and believers alike, we're persuading them. We're, we're, we're pointing them to Jesus. We're reminding them of the gospel. So who are you presently persuading Who are the people that you're praying for earnestly that that God would work in their lives? Who do you need to have a, a conversation with? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Second question I want to ask is this. Are you daily dwelling on the love of Christ towards you. We've, we've asked this question a lot of different ways over the years. One of the ways that we've asked it is, are you living a cross-centered life? Are you living cross-centered days where you're thinking about what Christ has done for you throughout the moments of the day? You're considering uh, who he is and his great love and sacrifice for you. 
Paul here highlights the importance of meditating on the gospel. The, gospel's protect, the, the gospel protects us. The gospel, it, it keeps us focused on the thing that is of first importance in life. It, it keeps us driven and directed. It, it motivates us to engage in ministry and to love and to serve other people. It, it motivates us to sacrifice for the good of other people as well. And that's kind of the final point I want to make. How could Paul continue to love these Corinthians? I mean, some of these guys were monsters. Every chance they got, they were going to stab him in the back. They were going to talk about him. He leaves town and they, they get their groups together and they're like, hey, did you, did you hear about this? Did you know that he did this? And this is going on, yet Paul continues to love them. He continues to write to them. He continues to pray for them. What compels him to do that? I mean, that's the crazy part of who he is, if he's crazy. Well, as Paul daily meditates on the gospel, what's he reminded of? The love of God. The mercy of God. The grace of God. The patience of God. The long-suffering spirit of God that God has shown to Paul day in and day out and continues to show to Paul. Those are the qualities that he thinks about as he thinks about the gospel and that compels him then to show and to share those qualities with the people around him, including the Corinthians. Paul doesn't deserve mercy and grace. Paul doesn't deserve uh, God to be more long-suffering with him. And he gets it and he knows it and he knows the Corinthians don't either, but he's going to show it to them because that's the kind of love that's been shown to him. So who are your Corinthians? Who are the people that have caused you pain? Who are the people that have sinned against you? Maybe they've said things, they've done things, they've made accusations. Who are they? And what does the love of Christ compel you to do towards them? Mercy, grace. Forbear, be long-suffering. It's to show the love of Christ to them. Let the love of Christ compel you because love gives of itself Love prefers the interest of others above self. Christ is the only thing that can truly motivate this. Christ is the only thing that can truly make this possible in our lives. And you think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, whose spirit resides in you? The spirit of Christ. The spirit of love and mercy and grace. And patience show that love to others guys we can muster motivation to do a lot of crazy things in life today let the gospel motivate you to love and persuade others so that they can see Christ his love through you through your actions 
Make it your aim to please the one who died and lives for you. He died. Let's read that one more time. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Oh, let's live for Christ. Let's love as he loved. Let's persuade as he persuades. Amen.